Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Aaron Frost. Hello. AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from some Pomplamoose Mountain Dew. Chris Ferdinandi. Hey, it's Chris Ferdinandi, the Vanilla JS guy. You guys are killing me with your interest today. Joe Eames. Uh, hello. Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. Yeah, we have full house today. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week we have two special guests. We have uh, Hillel Wayne. Hello. And Richard Feldman. Excited to be on this John from Philly. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash jsjabber. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. It's weird having Richard on the show and not being talking about Elm. So oh, we'll find, I, don't worry, we'll find a way to talk about Elm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I did a double take when I looked at the episode today. I'm like, oh, we're talking about Elm. Elm. No, I'm not Elm. Uh, <laughs> so event stream. Does somebody want to kind of get us rolling there? I'm I'm not quite sure where to start on this one. Hell, do you want to shake sure. us off? Okay, sure. So I should probably talk about what I'm doing and why I'm here and sort of my interest in this. So first of all, quick disclosure, I'm actually pretty much entirely uninvolved with JavaScript. I know almost nothing about it, almost nothing about front-end development, et cetera. But I do a lot of work on accent analysis and um, formal verification of programs. And I've been sort of looking into a couple of techniques to do this better. Boom, and has, boom, boom. Yep. You got to go back and define like 17 words that were just spoken. Of. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the two words that you said that were kind of wild were uh, what were they? I got I don't even I didn't even catch them. JavaScript? JavaScript is a program. <laughs> <laughs> that was one. Okay. Never heard of it before, but well, let's talk about the other two. You said you worked on blank and blank. What were those? Um, accident analysis and formal verification. Accent analysis? Accident, like accident. things break. Why do things break? Okay. Yeah, I heard accent too, and I was thinking of Frosty, but... Yeah. Hello. Hello. What is this accent we've got here? I can identify that accent. That's a Top Utah. of the morning to you. be an Irish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sorry. Anyway. Nah, okay, so accident analysis, and what was the other thing? Formal methods. Formal methods. So that's yeah. like tuxes, right? And yeah. evening gowns. Pretty much. So describe what formal methods is. It's the study of how we can look at programs and designs and make sure they're correct. Like, not just correct in terms of, oh, yeah, we tested it, but we proved it's correct and it cannot be incorrect to some degree. So it's kind of a very niche field, but it's seeing more and more use as we start to make it more and more accessible to people who aren't obsessed with, like, staying up for 48 hours yelling at blackboards. And it's, we've been seeing some really cool stuff come out of it. Um, a lot of my, the work I do is sort of in like showing how large-scale designs, especially distributed systems, don't have bugs. But I'm just sort of saying this all to sort of talk about why I'm sort of approaching this and why I'm interested in an event stream, despite not really being a JavaScript person. 
So is everybody sort of familiar with the event stream as an accident? No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not familiar yeah. with a lot of things that are accidents. Yeah. yeah. Most of what's happened in my life. But I, was yeah. Yeah, let's I have kids. I get it. We should yeah. definitely start at the very beginning of all this and for people who aren't familiar with. with yeah, I feel like we're talking about the multiverse. Like, what is the event, event stream as an accident? Yeah. So would, would anybody else sort of take on, like, explaining what it is or should I just keep going? Go. Okay. I have no idea what you're talking about. Give so us the red it. pill, man. Just explain to us what it is. Okay. So there's this library on NPM called EventStream. It was a JavaScript library that oh, provided yeah. tooling for, well, doing streaming streaming oh, data yeah. structures, right? Yeah. Um, so what happened is we found out in November of this year that it had malware in it. It actually was sort of calling out to this weird library that was doing all this weird crypto stuff. And as we later discovered, it was essentially trying to see if it was being included by one specific um, Bitcoin package, and if so, stealing everybody's wallets. And when people were trying to investigate what was going on with this, they talked to the original owner of the package, Dominic Tarr, and found out that in September of 2018, somebody had contacted him saying, hey, can I take over the package? Dominic said, sure, and just transferred rights. So naturally, everybody started pointing fingers at who was at fault for this. Dominic for like giving it to some internet random person or the, or like um, the people for not auditing their packages or NPM itself. And it basically came this like bit of a firestorm of like, what happened, who's at fault, who's to blame, what's the root cause here? And it's worth noting that this, this was one vulnerability that, that happened like pretty recently, but this kind of came after another vulnerability that had happened for sort of somewhat unrelated and somewhat related reasons uh, even earlier. Sorry to interject. No, I mean, yeah. I'm going to do an interesting side tangent. My brother and I were storyboarding a, a book. Uh, this, this event stream uh, hack, that's, it's in the book. Really? Yeah, like not the event stream. Like we're not calling names out, but that thing that you could do, that's like that's going to be one of the like the switcheroos that the protagonist takes in the book. So it's really interesting to dive into because you know it's it's all human stuff, right? Yeah. Dominic Tar was probably tired or moved on to something else, which is normal. It's open source. He's the first open source person that's ever felt like that. Though. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. No one's ever. No one's ever had any trouble with that ever. Yeah, he's just like I'm the only one. All right, I, I'm. I'm tired. It's also natural to assume, you know, good intent. If somebody comes along and says, "Hey, can I, you know, can I take on some of this work for you?" Yeah. And the other thing that had happened previously, like the the left pad incident, oh, was yeah. it was not so much a somebody's trying to steal people's wallets, but it was more like. Somebody who had published a package decided that they didn't want to maintain it anymore. And in fact, they were they were kind of upset about various things. So they decided to take down all their packages, which broke a huge number of dependencies and kind of ground a lot of people's development workflows to a halt. But the thing that they have in common is basically a package maintainer deciding, hey, I don't really care about this anymore. And then what are the consequences to everyone that has depended on that package? And yeah. in the case of LeftPad, it was an inconvenience and stopping your team from working. Whereas in this case, it was literally stealing people's money. Yeah. Yeah. And incidentally, worth noting, like another finger that people like to point is they like to say, well, this is NPM's fault. How many package managers do you know that are just as vulnerable to this as NPM was? I mean, there's, there's a lot of commonalities between this and plenty of other package managers, uh, but NPM is the one that it happened to happen to in this case. Well, I was going to say, I mean, if they're publishing third-party software, it's only all of them. 
Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. In so fact, there was a similar attack that just happened in the Java world that hasn't been as public because people aren't as excited about yelling at Java with, I believe, the audio, one of the audio recorder packages was malicious because someone had hijacked one of the quirks in the package management system. So it's funny that you should mention all of the package managers while also at the beginning of the episode, someone said it's weird that we have Richard on here and we're not talking about Elm. Well, <laughs> there is one <laughs> package manager <laughs> where that actually, uh, that particular attack can't quite work, which is to say Elm's package manager because it specifically makes it so that when you're exposing your types of your functions and stuff, there's an explicit distinction between this is a library that is capable of doing side effects and this is one that's not. And oh, in fact, if you try to switch it up and be like, oh yeah, this is just doing string processing or just like working with events. Uh, and then you suddenly try to make it do some HTTP requests, no one would be able to use your library anymore. All of your dependencies would break. So that would be a very impossible thing to sneak in there. Um, and Elm doesn't offer any escape hatches to like work around that if you're an attacker. Uh, as far as I know, every other package ecosystem either doesn't support that or has escape hatches that an attacker could exploit like Haskell's unsafe perform IO and stuff like that. But anyway, that's a neither here nor there. I have a question about that though, because you said if it doesn't have side effects, then you can't all of a sudden add side effects. But if it's a package that does have side effects, could you not sneak something like this in? Yeah, definitely. So that's uh, that's what I mean about like this specific attack where like they, they managed to rely on the fact that event stream, and I think it actually came through another dependency on like something about... Uh, Flatmap stream. Flat yeah, that's the one. So a library like that, you couldn't sneak it into. Now, having said that, if you managed to get control of a package that was like HTTP helpers or something right. like that, you absolutely could do the same thing uh, to an Elm package. So I would say the the uh, surface area of vulnerability is a lot smaller, but it's not zero. Right. Well, the other thing is, is I, I see this as sort of a, we haven't had a major issue like this in however long. <laughs> Because for the most part, we can count on people being good actors in the community. It's just, you know, we finally got nailed with this one because of oversight in a number of ways. And is it the community's fault? Is it NPM's fault? I, I don't know if you can really apportion clearly the blame to any one party, well, except for the person there, who did it. There is definitely a cultural issue in the JavaScript community with well, I mean, I, I guess it's a belief system thing, so I can't say that it's wrong. I think it's stupid. But this idea that I'm going to publish a module for every one-line function <laughs> in the existence of the universe and that, you know, something that does that does something really, really simple, like transforms an HTTP request from a node event to a callback or a promise has... 48 dependencies from 50 different contributors. We definitely in the Node community and JavaScript community as a whole kind of accept, like, it's okay that when I create React App, I now have 1,308 contributors responsible for 891 packages. <laughs> There's no way it's that small. Plus, I really want to hear Chris weigh in on this point. Yeah, I don't. I'm, I'm honestly not just like not in the ranting mood today. I'm looking at my um my Gulp build though for like my super simple static website, and it's uh, 272.5 megabytes of stuff. <coughs> That's to just concatenate some JavaScript. And yeah, 
SaaS yeah. together. So I think it's worth talking about why that is the case, though, why that culturally has developed. And this sort of ties into what I sort of why I'm interested in this attack in particular, the event stream attack. Have any of you heard of what's called the stamp model? No. Okay. So there's this pretty legendary safety researcher. Her name is Nancy Levison. She did things like the Therac 25 investigation, a lot of the Columbia and Challenger investigation, not Challenger, Columbia investigation, Ariane 5. And she has this theory called STAMP, um, Systems Theoretic Accident Model and Process. She did a lot of work for the government. She loves her acronyms. And her idea is that a lot of accidents, we tend to think of them as having root causes, right? But they don't. They have massive combinations of different constraint failures and causes that lead to an attack being feasible. And when we want to analyze an accident, we don't want to just figure out how it happened. We want to figure out all the reasons that should have stopped from happening, why those failed, and all the things that should have made it so that it would have not happened in the first place, why those failed. And you keep on keep on going to figure out the entire space of the system and figure out why it makes accidents at all possible. Are you telling me there were multiple problems here? There's many, many, many things that went on with this attack. Um, well, yeah, and for, for people like me, I just want to make sure it doesn't happen to me, right? And so right. I, I like this approach because it's, okay, what are all the things? And then, you know, how can we make the odds of this happening, you know, mm-hmm. as small as possible? I'd really love to point a whole bunch of fingers at people. That's my <laughs> favorite thing to do. I, I think uh, one of the interesting pieces of this is, and like one of the systems that kind of breaks down, I guess, is um, there's an element of like author trust, like if I look at a package and I'm like, oh, this is the person who made that package, part of you know my personal methodology for deciding should I use this as one of my dependencies is trust. Um, and just like, do I trust that person? And I've been thinking about this recently. So before I got into Elm, I had this package uh, called Seamless Immutable, which is basically a just sort of drop-in replacement for basic JavaScript data structures, except they're immutable, like an immutable array that you can use in a for loop, stuff like that. And I maintained it for a couple of years. And then I got into Elm and I just kind of lost interest in it. So for a while, I was kind of like, okay, well, I'll keep like doing issue triage and maybe I'll do a couple of releases. But eventually I just handed it off to like one of the top contributors who I trusted because he'd been, you know, doing, doing a good job with it. And I didn't really think much of it. But what occurs to me is that when people look at that, I mean, the repository is still under my name. I still have most of the commits on it over history. By all accounts, if somebody's looking at it, they're like, oh, like Richard does that thing. I trust Richard, so I should trust this package. But really, I haven't really paid attention to it in like years. It's only under my name for historical reasons. Yeah. Um, I had a browser extension that I had built. Um, I built it for me only. It was a utility to make a website look a little different. And I didn't ever want to have to install it again. So I deployed it to the Chrome web store, right? And um, now I have like 7,000 users and um, I, I get more every day. I don't even know how. And then people now contact me and they want to buy my, my, my browser extension and they want to like just buy 7,000 users. And I'm like, and, 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 and I mean, it's all, the English is always broken. So it's like, and it's, it's, it's very unprofessional feeling when I'm like, when I read these emails. So, I mean, I'm obviously not going to sell 7,000 innocent people, but I'm aware that someone on the internet will, right? Someone would be like, dude, yeah, give me $10,000 and you can have my browser extension. So like, there's other ways to get just as had with the same event stream hack, right? Like if someone hijacked a browser extension that we all use, mm-hmm. 
game over, right? Like someone, like imagine if the React Dev Tools or the Angular Augury, some dependency deep inside had the exact same thing. All developers just got hacked, right? I, I think I read yesterday Guillermo Rauch said there's 1.4 million people with the React Dev Tools, uh, yeah, uh, browser extension installed. So like that'd be a million and a half engineers done if someone could get it. So it, it is weird. If you could figure out a way to hack, transitively hack your way into a browser extension, even. This or is like, text editors, same deal, right? Yeah. VS Code, Emacs. See, the, there, was the, there was the Kite yeah. incident that happened with um, Adam and VS Code, where um, I believe the people who controlled, I believe, the Kite extension um, ended up starting to um, send telemetrics of what everybody was typing to their home server, and nobody noticed for a while. Hmm. Don't quote me on that. I believe it's Which, more complicated than that. I think it was Kite, the Kite extension. So this reminds me of like the number one thing that I'm the most scared of, which is why I always give a PSA to, to about this because um, this is something that you can actually protect yourself from. Post install and pre-install scripts. So by default, if I run npm install on my front end project and I'm like, I just want to get my dependencies for my project for my front end application, it'll download all the packages and install them locally. But also if any of them have scripts that run on install, those will all get executed. Natively. And yeah, yeah. They could be like doing not unsandboxed, unsandboxed, right? Yeah, yeah. Just arbitrary Node.js code, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, they, yeah, can, yeah. they can give you a virus. They can do whatever they want. And basically the only reason that, uh, you know, uh, hopefully, oh, well, first of all, we could all be infected and who knows already <laughs> because as far as I know, everybody I know just runs NPM install um, you know, like that, not, not with any kind of sandboxing. Um, so I, I don't think that that's uh, a good default for people to use. So what I always recommend is if you run npm config, uh, you can globally disable scripts by default and, and switch that default around. So that by default, if you run npm install, it will not run any post install or pre-install scripts. Now, granted, that does mean that like some packages that actually need those to build, you know, for non-malicious reasons, you have to go and install them manually with like flipping the flag on again. So it's a little bit annoying. And then there's some ergonomic stuff like it disables like tests by default, like NPM test stops working unless you give it the turn it back on flag. But I think like that's for, as far as like peace of mind about like not getting a potential Trojan, if there's like another one of these zero days where the attacker actually does it through install scripts rather than, you know, just trying to hijack the Bitcoin wallets of one particular package. That to me is like, you know, 1.4 million sounds like a small number of developers who could suddenly get a virus, you know, from something like that. Like I, I got, I was on the internet in the nineties. I remember what it was like, you know, back when, when like viruses were a thing. Eval. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's the discussion, right? Is that it's super convenient to not have to think about this stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, to Richard's point, those install scripts are sometimes really important to being able to use your software. So, so is there a balance to be struck but, here? I mean, it's actually even worse than that because often the balance isn't between usability and security as many people think. It's between security and a different kind of security. Mm, um, for example, one of the things about the um, event stream attack was that the attacker created a version bump on the bug fix um, portion, basically bumping the bug fix number, the patch number, put the malicious um, dependency in there, and then bumped the major version. So what that was doing was exploiting the fact that it is considered good practice to let your dependencies float on the patch or minor versions to get security updates. So we now have this conflict between two different concepts of security, getting constant updates when you know vulnerabilities and pinning your dependencies to avoid attacks. And this is one of the fundamental challenges with designing systems is if you are not very careful from the start, you can enter cases where 
your own security conflicts with your own security. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if they had just had pin dependencies and they were like vetting each, uh, like completely pinned, then and they were vetting each update, then yeah, they would have missed out on that, <laughs> or they hopefully would have uh, yeah. caught that bad one. But on the other hand, if you do have pin dependencies, then you're potentially missing out on critical security updates because you don't get around to them in time. Yeah. 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 So how do you not quit this? <laughs> I mean, how do you not quit, right? I oh. mean, it's, it seems like I'm chasing my freaking tail here, right? So the, I think the, I mean, the problem is something inherent with open source and it's, it's something that like every, everything that everyone's talking about, Richard's ideas and other ideas I've read on blogs, because there was a whole series of blogs that came out after this. They're all just kind of band-aids around the problem that open source is just on its best day, not secure enough. And there might not be a way to to get it ever where it needs to be. And so, I mean, honestly, there's a bunch of band-aids people are talking about. There's a bunch of things Richard's doing apparently to protect himself, but generally those aren't scalable solutions, you know, and it's it's just really kind of a sad day because the good actors and there's like 99% of them are what enable the bad actors. You know I'd like saying? to point out that band-aids are things you put on to let the system heal. That's true. I, I mean, we could do that, but it, 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 nothing. It, I mean, we didn't fix anything as long as as long as everyone realizes that, right? So, yeah, we, right. We, I mean, we can do it better, even if we can't totally fix it. Yeah, like we can we can reduce the attack surface area so the attacks are hopefully fewer, farther between, and less damaging. Well, the other thing is, is like if you triage somebody who's broken a bone that's broken the skin, you stop the bleeding first. And then you set the bone. Yeah. I just want to add one more thing because I was really frustrated during this uh, when this happened. And I don't, I don't know who Dominic is. And I don't need to know to not think that he was a bad person. And I was really bothered that everyone like assumed malintent or ignorance or just foul play. It's just like, you know what? There are so many scenarios. I, I'm going to argue a majority where when bad things happen, Literally, no one was trying to do bad by the other people, right? Like, there's many scenarios where when even though bad things happen, both players had best intentions. And so I couldn't find fault, really, in anyone besides the person who checked in the malicious code. I mean, Dominic did his thing. He wasn't trying to be whatever he was accused of. And and NPM certainly isn't going to be accused of not caring. And like, so, I don't know, I just, I had this real... Who, what the hell are you talking about moment watching the JavaScript community melt down over this event stream thing? It was really kind of, it was, it was so there, odd. Yeah. There's a couple quotes yeah. from Leviston I like here. One of them is, and I have this actually written in the blog post I have on this. The biggest problem with hindsight bias and accident reports is not that it's incredibly unfair, which it usually is, but that the opportunity to learn from the accident and prevent future occurrences is lost. The act of us trying to find who to blame is usually what prevents us from looking in the future and seeing how to prevent this from happening in the first place. Mm-hmm. She actually has this great um, anecdote in her free book, Engineering a Safer Future, Engineering a Safer World, where she talks about how in aircraft accidents in the military with the Air Force, they'd often blame like planes suddenly exploding or crashing on the pilots just not being trained well enough. And, and every single time their solution was, oh, clearly the pilots need to be better. And they only stopped doing this when they started noticing that their missiles, their ICBMs would also just randomly explode. And they couldn't blame that on pilots because there were no pilots involved. And that's when they started much more seriously looking into what was actually the problems and why things were actually breaking. And the same thing is true here. Everybody, by trying to blame Dominic, is finding an easy solution that doesn't require them to actually ask what were the problems here that made this a problem. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, 
I'm not sure how much we learned other than I felt like there was a general feeling by people that maybe we should donate to open collective a little bit more. That's what I wanted to chime in and say, like I'm, you know, being a little quiet today, but I've worked at a number of startups and even larger companies. And there's so much that you leverage for free and you just like take, take, take and never give. And I think organizations have, I don't know, they, uh, they have an obligation that they're just like flat out ignoring to give back to the community. Well, yeah. I, or, or I mean, just like you, I don't know. You just like you can't take, 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 and never give back. That's I, I don't I, know. Maybe I'm too idealistic. I don't think you are. So, like, I work at Nora Inc. We we hired Evan Chaplicki in like January 2016 just to work on Elm full time. Like, we pay an entire salary. We're like a 60, 70 person company, you know, and like we were even smaller back then. And everybody's like, "That's so weird. How are you going to pay someone to just work on open source? Like, full t- like, how can you, you know, afford that?" And it's like. On the one hand, like, I understand that it's weird, but it's like, that's the type of company we want to be. Well, I will add too, I think it's not necessarily that people, you know, I think some people just do it out of ignorance because, you know, you have all these startup founders who have no, no like tech whereabouts them and they just will go and you know, say, go build this. And people are like under the gun to go build. And Well, and that's just how it's done too, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an easy default. Another one that I'm going to call out is uh, Brian Carterella at Dockyard. They hired Chris, um, I can't remember his name. Anyway, he's the guy that created Phoenix, which is the web framework for Elixir. And it's the same kind of thing. And they leverage his expertise, right? If they run into something, they'll ask him for help. And he does help them on projects. But yeah, his primary job is writing Phoenix. So I disagree. I think it is ethically the right choice to pay open source maintainers, but I don't think it'll be a significant improvement to security. And Mm. I'm going to give two reasons why I think that. The first is that we see so many security breaches at professional companies, Equifax, Verizon, PayPal. We just had the iOS bug like last night. Payment does not guarantee security. And the second thing is that still sort of puts the blame, that still sort of puts the emphasis that the fundamental problem here is the maintainers. Mm. If, even if we say we have to pay maintainers, that still implies that the maintainers are the people who need to have the discipline, but that doesn't scale. There were 3,000 different maintainers on everything that the copay wallet, the target of the attack, used. We cannot sort of rely on any system that requires all 3,000 to always be responsible. So yeah. I think, speaking I, of system solutions, I actually want to highlight that JavaScript itself is actually one of the biggest success stories in security through sandboxing. So again, going back to the 90s, the reason that viruses were so pervasive in the 90s fundamentally was the internet came out and the way everybody did applications back then was you downloaded a binary that could run arbitrary code. And so if you wanted an interesting application that did pretty much anything non-trivial, the way that you did it was you downloaded a .exe file and ran it and hoped it didn't give you a virus. And then when like the web got big and like people started making web applications, one of the big draws of web applications was you could go to that website and just start using the thing. Partially it was the convenience of not having to download anything. But the other thing was you could be pretty confident it wasn't going to give you a virus because it couldn't write to your file system. It couldn't read from your memory outside the sandbox of the browser. And that was huge. And that's like when, when people stopped talking about like, how antivirus was just like this like crucial thing. And if you didn't have antivirus software, you're going to definitely get a virus. It's like just kind of stopped happening. And I think that's like uh, an interesting story to look at because now, I mean, of course, the web has gotten so big and JavaScript has gotten so big that we now have this 
secondary vector, like through the fact that, you know, the applications have such huge code bases. And as we talked about earlier, there's this culture of installing lots and lots and lots of packages um, that that's become a new vector. And, and I think the effectiveness of JavaScript as a sandboxing system or of the, the browser as a sandbox, like how effective we saw that be in the 90s is why I think going more in that direction and doing things like disabling, you know, pre and post install scripts by default or using like Elm's package system that has, you know, a sandbox by default with certain guarantees. That's that's something we should we should look more into than we have been. I totally agree with with this point here. And um, I think that I mean, I've sat on panels and committees where at work we get we we get drilled on, hey, I need to see every license that every single one of our dependencies, our dependencies and their transitive dependencies uses. And everything has to be one of these licenses and it's a list, right? And so I'm talking about just auditing licenses, yo. Like I'm not even talking about um, auditing code. I'm talking about auditing the freaking one property in a package JSON, right? Like that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. And that takes a long time. When you sit back and you look at large companies and you say, I want this company to solve this problem. And I, and I think about those meetings that I've been in. It's like, I can't think of a process that we could have put in place that would have prevented this event source problem had I been, a de- had I depended on the copay library. So, cause like, it's, it's like you guys have said, if it wasn't this way, it was another way, right? Like there were, there, like I had, I had securities, that, security procedures that contradicted each other. And, and that's kind of how he, the guy hooked us in. So man, it's just, it's so brutal the futility sometimes of looking at the the, the the myriad of attack vectors for for bad actors, right? Levison agrees with you. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Can I push a little bit here because we're already... 40-ish minutes into what's typically an hour-long episode. Um, and I really want to get talking about what we are doing. It, yeah, I mean, we, I think we've well established that this is not an easy problem to solve and that it's, it's an easy problem to get into because it's easy to overlook a lot of the causes. But what are we doing now in JavaScript? I, I don't think we're 100% solving the problem, but I'm pretty sure that people are doing stuff to fix it, right? I, I mean, I, I don't know if this is like, becoming a trend, but I'll say that um, it's certainly something I've been seeing people talk about more and hopefully it becomes a trend is the idea of pushback against having so many dependencies or like reaching for something off the shelf as such a a quick response. Like I, I personally have gotten to the point where I'm like, if I can reduce my dependencies on stuff as like a package author, that's awesome. I'm excited when I'm like, you know what? I actually don't need that dependency. I can just do a little bit more code, like, you know, bespoke code in my own code base. And then that's one less thing that all of my, you know, the people that depend on this have to worry about. 
I would love to see that become a, a, a trend and then a phenomenon. You and me both. It's open source. You can just look at the source and copy the 10 lines you need. Yes, as long as you cite the author. Make sure you give him credit. <laughs> AJ, you would not believe how much pushback I get on that idea, though. I know, I know. I because made people... um, a pull request to a couple of open source projects where I was like, you're including this dependency, and really you just need this one loop that's these four lines. And I got pushback of, oh, no, 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 we need something that's tested. <laughs> I feel like that is like the greatest pull request you could ever provide, in my personal opinion. <laughs> well, if you can write the test, of course. So yeah, I, I want something that's tested. So lift the code and the test. I, I don't know. I mean, like, do you really need a test on a for loop that, like, you can visually inspect? This has exactly four loops in it from one to four, and it increments by two. Like, but yes. but it wasn't even the issue of the test. It was that he didn't want to have to maintain more lines of code. That mm. was kind of the, the reasoning behind it, or I, I don't know. It's just... So there's something worth pointing out here, um, and that you ask what we could do to make this um, better, and I can talk about some of the things that we can do, is that this all sort of brings up a sort of an elephant in the room here. Why can it... So here's the thing. Copay did not depend on event stream. Copay depended on NPM run all, which depended on PS tree, which depended on event stream, which depended on flat map stream. Why can a dependency four modules deep write like write to a third-party server? And that's one of the things that actually is being investigated as a means of reducing the attack vector. How can we make it so that way modules have restricted permissions? That's currently being work done in the Mozilla working group on this. How can we make Electron added security features by default? So Electron had ways to prevent this. They just are off by default. We can enable those by default. Those, these are things that we can do in the short term that would make these categories of tax less dangerous without having to us to change every single person's cultural attitude towards modules. Another thing that's being done is, uh, or at least being, it's, I think it's in the TC39 proposal stage um, at this point, but I know they're talking about it because I'm, I'm part of a like TC39 and framework authors like group where we kind of talk about these things. And one of the big topics recently has been sort of like JavaScript standard library, which is like the batteries that are included with JavaScript in terms of basic primitives. And one of the observations is like, hey, like everybody uses Lodash, you know, it's like the stuff that comes out the box is clearly not what programmers think is like enough to sort of uh, get stuff done with this language. What if we added more batteries? And I think an interesting point about that is that a difference between a standard library that comes with the language versus a uh, even something as standardized as Lodash that comes off the shelf is it's one more dependency that everybody has, and it becomes a transitive dependency. And part of that conversation is bundle size, but another part of that conversation is attack vector size. If you mm-hmm. can change the culture where people are not saying like, I mean, flat map stream, like in Elm, if you saw that as one of your dependencies, you'd be like, what? What are you even doing? Just use the stuff that comes out the box. But in JavaScript, it's like, oh, yeah, flat map stream. I don't know. I want to flat map over some streams. Well, of course, that would be a separate dependency. Yeah. Just quickly, I want to say one thing in favor and one thing against that. One thing in favor of that is that um, if you look at, for example, the internationalization package for JavaScript, it has 224 dependencies. The Python one has zero. So that's like in favor. On the other hand, um, we've added LeftPad to the standard library of JavaScript about three years ago. And the LeftPad um, JavaScript um, NPM package is still downloaded over 2 million times a week. Yeah, that is a a thing is that I don't know why anyone would ever need Lodash because everything that's in Lodash, it seems, uh, aside from like weird stuff that I I don't know that anybody actually uses, is in the standard library now, but nobody knows that. Yeah, I've gotten some requests for weird stuff though. Like people have asked me for um, 
like vanilla JavaScript equivalents of low dashes, like mm-hmm. I think it's called like the, the pick method where like you right. follow an object path to get something and fall back to a default if it's not there. But like, plus, yeah, I was looking at it the other day. There's so much stuff in there. That's just part of like plus, standard ES. Plus a lot of us um, support clients that don't have modern environments where those right. standard platform things exist. And so, and in a lot of cases, it's like I could use the thing that's built in, but doesn't work on IE9. And then like I could transpile my way into that, or I could just install a package and it's easier. I'm going to say something a little controversial, polyfills. Like <laughs> 90% of the things that we use libraries for can be polyfilled. I shouldn't say now, that, but now, there's like a lot of the, a lot of this out of the box stuff. And the argument is it doesn't work with X browser. You can polyfill it. There's few exceptions. One other thing that I just want to throw in here is that as we add stuff to the standard library, it's really hard to pull out. And I mean, you know, you can say, look, there's this breaking change between versions, but it's still tricky. The other thing is, is as we add more stuff in, it's easier to justify adding more stuff in. And so, you know, coming from the Ruby background, for example, one thing that's in the standard library for Ruby is the CSV package. But if you're not parsing CSVs, you don't care that you have it. And so, you know, I, I tend to lean a little bit more toward don't give me anything more than I need. But then the flip side is, is that there's some third party package and I may pick the wrong one that causes me issues. So there is a way around this, which is, so Lodash is actually part of the JavaScript foundation. So that basically means that Lodash for the most part you can trust. It is run by the same people essentially who develop JavaScript. It exists as a third party package for that reason to keep it out of the standard library. So one thing we could do that's, better than the current state, but like not as strict as adding stuff to the standard library is to take things like glob parent, which is a utility download 10 million times a week and move it into a, a trusted centralized source. If we start to look at the packages that mm. everybody uses, like flat map stream, event stream or glob parent and such, and move them into larger packages, like Lodashes. More trustworthy us, packages. Yeah, more trustworthy packages. That would give us a degree of security without having us to have to update the core library. I like what you're saying, because then you just have to say, hey, we just need some of these conglomerate packages like Lodash to be super secure and focus. Exactly. And, and that could be actually really powerful. I hadn't thought about that as an option. The problem, though, is you still have to trust the foundation, right? The foundation has to be doing the right things. So it's but not just an automatic thing. You have, they have to have the processes for making sure that it's clean. Worth noting that as a concrete implementation detail, this is definitely something you can do through like namespacing, aka organizations in NPM. We actually, I, it didn't even occur to me until you brought this up, but this is actually something that we have in Elm. Like uh, regular expressions, for example, and like JSON parsing, those are not part of Elm's core library. But when you download them, it's like you get Elm slash core as like the default, you know, standard library, but there's also Elm slash regex, Elm slash JSON. So if you want those things, you're getting them from a very trusted source. And like, I don't know anybody who's like going to, you know, alternate implementations of those things. So I, I think that's a, that's a very good point. Angular and Vue are doing that anyway, right? I mean, you, you pull in some of the extra stuff from Angular, you import it and it's at Angular slash whatever. So, you know, it came from the Angular team. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Why not at JS slash, you know, Lodash? So Chuck's like, Hey, what are we doing to solve this stuff? And I, while we're talking about this, I'm thinking, I don't know that any of these things singularly would fix it. I'm hearing Richard say, hey, Elm's got an okay solution. Uh, it's not foolproof, but it's a little better. So, all right, Rich, do you think that maybe NPM is probably best poised to help us solve it? Or who do you, who do you think right now is like best poised to help us in the JavaScript community, obviously, not all communities, but to kind of help us with this type of uh, attack 
Well, I think, you know, if I can like piggyback off what Hillel was saying earlier, I think the answer is that it's no one answer. It's mm. like, uh, <laughs> there, there are a lot of different, you know, vectors here. And the, the problem is that when they come together, it creates something that's like more dangerous than the sum of its parts. Mm. So what like we can do, I think is like push back in a number of different areas. It's not, you know, and like not point fingers, but rather say, let's look at each point in this system where there was a problem and like, at like simultaneously try to make each of those better. And then maybe they will no longer be like sum up to something that's necessarily this dangerous. Or even I I think another under discussed aspect of this is like, that's just not that attractive to attack. Like Mm -hmm. once you make it like a certain degree of difficult to attack, you get fewer attacks because attackers look at, they're like, yeah, but look at all the eight things that would have to go right for me to pull this off. It's not worth my time to try and steal people's Bitcoin while it's this way. I'll go back to mugging people or whatever. I think that's, you know, something that like, even if it's not like we are, you know, NASA levels of secure, military levels of secure, we can at least get it to the point where it's just not worth it for attackers to try anymore. Yeah, I, I wasn't trying to, sorry, I, I wasn't trying to say it's, it's anyone's fault. My bad. Sure, sure, sure. But that's the thing too, right? Is, you know, you, you, you pointed out NPM, we've pointed out package maintainers, we've pointed out all of these different people. And the reality is, is, you know, like, like we just heard, I mean, it's kind of everybody. I mean, we use NPM because it's convenient, right? It's not like we delegated or, you know, we're sending them tons of money so that they can handle our security for us. And I don't think it's fair to put that on them. Now, they're probably going to take some steps anyway, because I know a lot of the people behind it, and that's the kind of thing they do. But, you know, yeah, there's responsibility all the way down. And yeah, we, we need to have the conversations at all levels and say, okay, you know, you know, how are you going to help us solve this? And how are you going to help us solve this? And make sure that we're paying attention to this. And we've actually I mean, talked about a lot of specific things that that each group can do. Like NPM, mm-hmm. maybe the default could be to ignore scripts and maybe make the ergonomics better to make that more of an opt-in thing. Package authors can reduce their dependencies and be more culturally okay with saying, I'm going to copy a few lines of code that I tr- you know, read and trust and vetted rather than pulling in this entire dependency if I'm just going to use four lines of it. And users can do things like being more cautious about who they trust and like being less eager to grab a dependency, things like that. We all put a lot of trust in like, we all, we're all like, hey, we trust Chrome to build secure browsers, right? And we, we, we all do our most secure stuff in the browser of our choice. So we put a lot of trust in a lot of places, right? And um, I, I feel like, um, like if you, if you, like, let's just say, if you took NPM out of the process, would this even have been possible to do? And the answer is, yeah, it would have, right? And mm-hmm. so um, I'm not sure NPM is the right place. I think the popularity and efficiencies from NPM exacerbated it. But I mean, I, I certainly that's not finger So I think that it is a lot of places that are responsible, what, not responsible, that need to get involved in fixing it is what I guess I'm saying. I'm not trying to do a backwards looking responsibility. I'm doing a forward looking. Like I think it's a lot of places that should get involved to, to help. Yeah, but it also, again, it comes down to those trade-offs, right? Because you, you mentioned the popularity and convenience of NPM may have exacerbated the problem, but imagine doing JavaScript without it, Yeah, without NPM, right? I mean, I remember, so yeah. And, and you can say that about pretty much every step along the way. You know, imagine have, not having this package because there's no maintainer. Or imagine having it be out of date and having to maintain it yourself because it's out of date. Or, you know, and so all of these things, yeah, it's, it, it's good. I, I, you're right, we need to pull everybody in. But 
it's hard to point fingers because ultimately a lot of good came out of the things that caused us the problem as well. So much good. Yeah, totally. I, I agree. When you were saying, imagine trying to do things without NPM, like that's, that's how I operate on a pretty regular basis. I mean, other than, you know, like I use Gulp and a couple of like build tool type things, mm-hmm. but I don't know. I guess it's, it's a little less hard for me to imagine than some others. Not that NPM is not an amazing resource that we all benefit from, but there's a part of me that yearns for the simplicity of a life before a bajillion packages and dependencies. This might be blasphemy. Take this with, with what it is intended as. I don't see NPM as all that important because we have Git. And so if we didn't have NPM, it would have just been GitHub and the whole entire it. Like, I believe the reason NPM developed was actually more along the lines that somebody wanted to experiment with CouchDB and make something fun because other, like Go, for example, just uses Git as the protocol. That's it. There is no package manager. It's just Git. So I, I think if you took NPM away, the problem remains, definitely. Yeah, I, I'm going to push back on that a little bit, AJ. How, how do you know which Go packages to pull or which Go repositories to pull into your thing then? I mean, they still have a directory, right? No. No? No, you just Google it. So two, two points on that. One is that is better from the sense of the like uh, post-install and pre-install scripts. Like Git clone, mm-hmm. definitely not going to execute arbitrary Node.js code right. on your machine. So definitely fair enough there. On the flip side, I remember this thing called Bower, which basically had that for JS. All right. And there was a there was a while where Bower and NPM coexisted and there was like not a clear winner. And now there is a clear winner. So mm-hmm. I, I feel like we did that experiment, but it just in practice, people seem to prefer having no. a centralized package manager for the JS ecosystem. But we didn't try that experiment because it was Bower. So Bower was not Git, Bower was Bower. Mm-hmm. And Bower had its own problems with like trying to register and deregister and change names of things. And they never built it out all the way. They they basically just said, hey, if you've got a Git repository, list it here and we'll do NPM for you. But it was never it was never Git. It was just another NPM that was marketed towards browser front-end developers. From from my yeah. perspective, that's what I saw. I, I guess my point is, is that if in the Go ecosystem, it becomes standard practice to use a particular library in a particular way, and then you go Google it, and you go do what the other guy did, and you put that code into your code, you're vulnerable to the same thing, even if you're using... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But I, the one thing I like about that model is kind of an aside is the brand value that you can create for yourself and, and keep that you do have more of an association with. It's not an NPM package. It's a XYZ.com package. So to be fair, I, w- I want to talk about this for a sec because this actually resonates with me really strongly. I'm thinking now about like kind of my early, I had no idea what the hell I was doing, Stack Overflow copy-paste days. And I put a ton of garbage code into my stuff that certainly could have exposed me to malicious things. And I wouldn't have even known what it was doing. And I think about the benefits of when I run NPM install, I now get that, you know, you have, you know, like eight potential vulnerabilities, run NPM audit to see what they are and fix them. And me from the copy paste days probably still wouldn't know what to do with those things. Although now there's NPM audit fix, which is awesome. But having some sort of ecosystem that at least gives you some tooling to identify these vulnerabilities in a way that you might not be able to, I think is really helpful. Um, absolutely agree. So I have not used Go, let alone done a full stamp analysis of it, but two things that immediately come to mind, 
as maybe Hillel has, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, or maybe you should, that'd be an interesting blog post. But two things come immediately to mind that, that came up earlier in our conversation. One is, and uh, assuming that it is true that in Go, you just say to get, get this thing, I'm just going to give you a Git URL and it's going to go download it and go from there. That suggests that Go is just as vulnerable to left pad as NPM used to be, because the whole problem there was you can unpublish stuff and it breaks everyone. So if there's a bunch of people depending on some particular URL, and then that URL goes down because the person who was hosting it decides they don't want to do it anymore, that breaks everyone's dependency. Snap. Is that? I don't know if that's true or not. So the the convention in the Go community, I think that it's the best. Like lots of people would argue against it, but the convention in the Go community is minimum dependency version. So you go with the minimum version that you can. It never auto updates. And a great many people, and this is part of the default Go, Go tooling now, use vendoring. So you run Go mod vendor and it copies everything at the exact version and you commit it to your repository. So if you use the standard Go tools and kind of like the recommended flow, you don't ever have any of the problems that you have with normal package managers because you're only downloading stuff once. You, I mean, it, now, it is really well thought out by looking at how everybody else has done it. To play devil's advocate there, though, I mean, if you're still just going and getting arbitrary URLs from the internet, that means there's another attack vector, which is someone gaining control of someone else's server. And saying like, oh, culturally, we're just going to install this thing from this one URL. And it's like, most of the time that's trusted until someone gets control of that server. And now suddenly everyone who, who is using that on a new project is getting a poisoned version of that. Whereas from NPM, these are hard-coded to be NPM URLs or, or any package manager. That attack factor doesn't exist. I think. <laughs> I think it's half six of one, half a dozen of the other type thing there. Like, I agree. The vulnerability is still there. You can install these tools that, and I think in most languages now, there is something like NPM audit where it'll go through and track your dependency tree. That's certainly true. There's two tools for that and go. My point is not to advocate one or the other. I was just bringing it up. I, I think that you're absolutely right. Many of the vulnerabilities, like the complexity is just shifted in, in, in some cases. Like, do you want the complexity over here or do you want the complexity over there? So I'm not saying that it's necessarily better or worse. I'm just saying that the, the original argument was that it's, we're, a centralized repository is no longer required in the modern world. That was, that was the, the whole of the argument. Okay. I, I really want to push this back toward the, the conversation about what JavaScript does and, and where we go from here. It sounded like, Hillel, there might be some other things, you know, from a, a stamp analysis that you did or started. Was there anything else that we should dive into here and talk about as it relates to our particular predicament now, because it feels like we're still kind of hanging out there while we figure out what to do. Um, yeah, so I sort of wrote an essay on this, and I think we can include it in sort of the podcast description, which is basically just an 8,000-word analysis. I got a little bit carried away. It's fun stuff. Some of the conclusions are like, we don't have a way of sort of noting packages as legacy or obsolete. Most maintainers are random folk who do not expect or want the responsibility. Dependencies are transitive and very interesting ways. We don't have any way of really auditing packages. Like it's hard to sort of scope out these packages and say in your dependency tree, these packages are safe. These packages like can update freely. These packages are less safe. I want to be more careful with them. You also can't really distinguish high risk from those packages. Um, there doesn't need to be, there's going to be a mismatch between what MPM has uploaded and what GitHub has uploaded. In fact, with the flat map dependency to event stream, it was fine on GitHub. It was only in the NPM version, which actually had the bad code, the dangerous malicious code. 
Um, bundlers default to including minified code, even in even in standalone applications. If Copay had minified the code themselves, it would have led to a much more compact um, structure and also would have basically gotten rid of this vulnerability. Um, Electron uses legacy JS configurations. Legacy JS has to like emphasize backwards compatibility. There's, I mean, there's like a lot of different small things that all aggregate here. And I think there are, a lot of these do have tactical solutions. A lot of these have social solutions and some like, um, there was, for example, a bug on NPM's reporting form, which caused them to um, not receive the notification that this was a mistake. So they were only able to sort of notify people six days later. NPM might potentially like be able to invest a bit more in sort of like proactive security. They can sort of consistentize information updates. I mean, there's like a lot of things that go on here and it's not going to be easy to change all these things, but because it's a fundamental system problem we have of safety and it would have probably been easier if like this was our goal from the start, but for one reason or another, it wasn't. And now like any sort of changes would have to be very expensive and slow, but I think we can do it. I think these are not insurmountable and they're not like weak, they're not like um, discouraging. I think it's just sort of one of the big challenges we have to sort of address as a large scale challenge and not just a short scale fix. That makes sense? Or did I go yeah, a bit faster? Yeah, but it sounds like a lot. Oh no, there is a lot. Like, I, I'm, not, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There is a lot we have to do because systems are complicated, because safety is complicated, because there's a lot of right. ways things can go wrong. I mean, that's why we're paid a lot of money as mm-hmm. engineers. Let's pretend that uh, Halal or someone had a magic wand that could save us from this and they'd audit every package, right? Let's just pretend. Would companies pay for it? Like, we're so addicted to open source. If I waved a wand and it was like, oi, 100 bucks a month or a year, I don't know, like I'm throwing random numbers. Some number, your open source packages are legit. I bet mm-hmm. some companies would, probably a minority of them. And then yeah. that number would increase if like another bad thing happens. I bet. No, I'm going to sort of be a little more optimistic. I think some companies would, some companies wouldn't. And the ones that didn't, we'd have grounds to class action lawsuits against them. Fair enough. Because hey, you paid $100 a month and you would have been oh. completely vulnerable. Oh, that's true. You, you could, uh, you, uh, that's actually uh, a sick idea. Um, did did we all just co-found a startup on air? That just happened <laughs> well, I'll point out, I mean, like... Uh, what was it, Equifax or? Yep. You know, when they got hacked, it was essentially because they didn't update a database for free, yeah. right? And so, you know, if this service were out there, would they pay for it to avoid liability? Probably. To actually avoid one of these incidents? I'm not so sure. Like the CISO of every, every company, his job was to keep the CEO off the front page of like MS, like, news right and so they and they seem to have of all the people like the director of it his budget is limited the ciso has seemingly unlimited budget so it seems like they should be willing to invest in this stuff but i'm not as optimistic as hello but i love that he brought that up that mm-hmm. maybe the users who got hacked could say all right class action dude you get one of those where a judge goes actually we have emails where the employees told them to do this and then they didn't and then blah. And then now they're in shit forest. And like, uh, I could see it solving itself actually, well, if this kind of, of company existed. A, a lot of those lawsuits come out of, this was the standard bre- best practice and you didn't take the steps, right? It's, it's like medical malpractice. If, yeah. if you stuck to the standard of care, it's really hard to prove malpractice. If you kind of right. went off on your own with somebody's health, I mean, that's where you get trouble, right? Yeah, uh, if it became a thing that big companies do, and you're a big company and got hacked and didn't do it, ugh, I, I actually think Kalel is onto something. 
you could solve it with fear, I guess, is what is, and that's how most things get solved, unfortunately. So, <laughs> fear I think, of lawsuits. I think these you could kinds fear, of things, yes, that's how they get solved. I think you could fear your way into a solution, actually, maybe significantly easier than I was thinking you could. So that's actually a really interesting take. Yeah, I mean, somebody it's still, would still, it's still have to do hard. all the work, right, of doing the audits and. It's gonna be hard, dog. It's gonna yeah. be hard. I'm not saying it's gonna be easy. Yeah. You're gonna have to legit yeah. build a company that gives a shit, and it's gonna be hard. Like it's gonna be a problem. And when if you if you solved it only for JavaScript, it would be mon, mon, monolithic. Yeah. But I'm just saying you could make dense easier than I thought you could make yes. dense. That's what I meant. It's, it's hard, but importantly, it's the best kind of hard. Hard for someone else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not an engineering problem. It's a law problem. So we can just pay lawyers. Not yeah. our not our problem. No, the lawyers would give you the fuel you needed to like bootstrap your business and and and, and get get free clients, right? So yeah. So we used to be in a climate where bytes mattered and like size mattered. We're not in that climate anymore. Is there some cultural perspective that we could look at this problem with and say along, you know, the security metric and metric X that we need to solve for, you know, if we, if we put a focus on this, if we make a cultural emphasis on this thing that's, the, the security problem would get better too. And I, I don't think file size is going to be it, but is there is there something that would make people's lives more convenient or better that would also make it more secure? Any thoughts on that? That, you know, as a cultural thing in JavaScript? No. <laughs> I got I'll take that as what I said made yeah. no sense. Never mind. Yeah. No, I think, yeah. I, know what, I think I know what you're saying. So just if I understand correctly, you're saying, is there something that we can do that would make things both more convenient for users and more secure for them? Is that yeah. correct? that aligns with some value that people already want. Like, for example, the, the bite size thing. When that was a thing, people just believed in speed. Speed was something that they wanted. They felt like speed was convenience or important. And so there were certain trickles that came off of that. I have a solution. Uh-oh. Troy, I'll use Elm. Oh. <laughs> Solved. Solved. Hashtag solved. I, I endorse this solution. <laughs> Someone call Douglas Crockford. Tell him to hang it up. We're so, done. So for, example, for example, the thing that we would have identified if that were the case is functional programming is legit, right? That would be the thing, like the, the, the seller, the, the killer feature would be its functional programming. Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of people already buy into that. So I, I think I, w- I wouldn't frame that as convenience though, right? I mean, it's basically like saying, hey, if you use like a different language uh, that happens to have better security guarantees and also is nice for other reasons, then cool. But I mean, like uh, I don't have any illusions about like Elm replacing JavaScript. It's like a big, you know, shift to use a different programming language for a task, especially with a different paradigm, object-oriented versus functional. So I, I don't think you could really call that convenient per se, more like, you know. True. But it, by, what I really meant by convenient was like convenience is something that is always a hot button. Always. 100% of the time. There's other things that are hot buttons too that people will jump illogically, emotionally. I'm just going to well, say that I don't know enough about the JavaScript world ecosystem or culture to really have a good idea here. Yeah. Um, Gary V always says that people will buy time. And so if you can make it more convenient for them that way, then people will pay for it. But, you know can they buy time and buy security at the same time? I think in some instances you can and some you can't. Mm. All right. Well, is there anything else to jump on before we get to picks? Cause 
we've been going we've already gone over i'm happy to keep talking about it if you guys want but we went over i want to make sure that we're hitting all the important points before we wrap up so for our guests um how do people find you online um rt feldman on twitter I'm Hillelogram on Twitter, H-I-L-L-E-L-O-G-R-A-M, and I'm hillelwayne.com online. I have an essay on this. It's, I think, the second most recent one I have published called Stamping on Event Stream, which talks about all the stuff in the investigation as well as how the entire stamp accident process works and how like, you can do it yourself. Awesome. Hey, guys. Let me tell you about Clubhouse. I swear, I've used every project management software there is out there, and I hated project management software. Now I have Clubhouse. Overall, it's simple and straightforward to use, but it has enough of the integrations and power features you need to get the job done without getting confusing. This means that I can use it, and the non-technical members of my team can figure out what they need from it. It also makes it easy for me to zoom out and see what's going on overall before zooming back in and specifying more work that needs to be done or picking the next task for me to tackle. They integrate with all the systems that you'd expect and have a REST API for, well, the rest. If you go to https clubhouse.io slash jsjabber, you can get two months free instead of the standard 14-day trial for any team size. Once again, that's https clubhouse.io slash jsjabber. All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, hit some picks. Joe, do you want to start us with picks? Sure. I'll start us with picks. I just got one pick today. It's a board game, which is my usual shtick to pick board games. A friend of mine was recently talking about how he was playing some board games with his kids and his four-year-old and seven-year-old really wanted to play this board game and they couldn't. So he was asking for some recommendations on board games. And I told him, hey, you should really uh, be playing Stuffed Fables with your kids. Great board game, really fun. And so what it is, is you play like these stuffed animals that belong to this little girl and she gets a bad dream. So you have to go into the dream and protect her. And it's called a storybook board game because there's actually like this little spiral bound of storybook that you go through from level to level and uh, you play the stuffed animals. So it's really fun to play with kids, but it's actually a great game even for adults. So I highly recommend it. Uh, I played it with my kids and it's a lot of fun. So there we go. That's my recommendation or my pick. Uh, stuffed tables. Joe's really good at spending my money. Amy, what are your picks? I have a bunch today, actually. Let's see. I'm going to start with the first programming one. So um, when I started at NPM, I was uh, on the web team, but I'm transitioning to the infrastructure team, which I'm super, super excited about. I'm assuming that this comes out in a little while. So um, that's why I'm saying it now and haven't really posted much else in other places yet. But as part of that, I've been reading, um, Google has an SRE book. And so I've been starting that in my free time, which is really good. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, that's going to be my programming pick for today. And then it's been a while since I've had like non-programming picks. And normally I am a pretty thrifty person with my money, but uh, I've been like treating myself a little bit here and there. And I have fallen in love with uh, a certain pair of leggings at Lululemon or Lululemon. Um, they are absolutely amazing. So if you are, uh, if you enjoy this kind of thing and you're listening, highly recommend these. Or if you have someone in your life who would uh, like this kind of thing, these things are absolutely amazing. They are kind of pricey, but oh my gosh, they're wonderful. I think I have one, two, three, four. I think I have five pairs now. <laughs> in like every color. Uh, but I'll put a link for these two, but they're uh, specifically the in-movement leggings. They're pretty amazing for lifting in. And then the other one is going to be a band that I used to listen to. 
And I think I just forgot about them for a while and have like recently discovered a new love for them. And it's a DVSR. It's kind of like a metal hip hop kind of thing. So that's going to be all my picks for today. Nice. Frosty, what are your picks? Um, I'm going to pick the JSConf website. It's, uh, it's full on 90s. JSConf US, my bad. Sorry, I need to specify which one. And uh, the call for proposals is open. So, I mean, by the time this episode is out, it probably won't be open anymore, but um, I'm picking it anyway. Oh, man, I am digging that Saved by the Bell aesthetic. Yeah, it's pretty legit, dude. <laughs> when you go through their website, um, it's pretty all 90s, the whole thing. It's pretty cool looking. So uh, That's awesome. Yeah, I'm digging it too. Anyway, that's my picks. Uh, I actually, if I could... I'm going to pick Hillel and Richard too. I didn't know them before today, but I really, really enjoyed this podcast. So I'm going to pick Hillel and Richard. Nice. Awesome. Chris, what are your picks? Two for me today. Um, if you are in the mood for a new adorable puppy, head on over to pausenewengland.com. It's where uh, my wife and I adopted our dog Bailey like nine years ago. I do all their web work. So if you hate it, I'm the one to blame. Um, but they have a ton of cute puppies and uh, puppies are awesome. So you should go check it out. I also uh, just wanted to mention that I added uh, team licensing to all of my, um, my pocket guides and video courses over at vanillajsguides.com. So if you um, wanted to kind of level up the skills of not just yourself, but a couple of folks on your team, uh, you can save a bunch of money by buying those in bulk. And uh, that's it for me today. Awesome. I'm going to throw some picks in myself. One of my picks, and this is something that's a little bit new, but my headphones, I had some uh, uh, Sure headphones that kind of went out on me. And so I had to get new ones. Uh, They're the ones that I'm wearing to record the show. And they're Sony headphones. I got them at Best Buy. I'm trying to remember the exact make and model, but uh, I'll put a link to them in the show notes. But they're noise canceling in the whole nine yards. So my kids come in and I just ignore them. (laughs) Anyway... um, Really, really digging that. Um, another uh, shout out I'm going to make really quickly is, so over the last couple of weeks, I've been hiring people to write show notes. And uh, the two places I posted to are KSL Classifieds, which is a, a Utah, Idaho, Wyoming, you know, kind of area. I think you can go all the way down to like Las Vegas and stuff too, to, to get people who are looking for work. And I've been able to find a number of show notes people there. And I've also had some success with Upwork, Upwork.com. So I'm going to pick those and uh, yeah, super happy with that. Anyway, I'm going to shout out about all that stuff. Uh, Richard, what are your picks? Cool. I got two. One is Elm in Action, book from Manning. I am working on the final chapter, so I'm very excited to be almost done, but you can buy the first seven chapters right now if you want to check it out. It's in like early access. And then when I'm done with the last one, there'll be a paper version too. It's like basically get, get started with Elm zero to knowing how to build a full you know, web application, single page app with it. The other pick uh, is actually, uh, I think it was Joe mentioned a board game. Uh, this is also a board game. It's called Sentinels of the Multiverse. And uh, this is a board game that's been like successful enough to be in Barnes and Noble. It's been around for, must've been like a decade at this point. And I actually helped work on the very first version of this because it was created by a really old friend of mine um, and who was like my roommate in college and stuff. And I actually played this game when it was like Kinko's cardstock on like his dining room table. And now it's this, uh, this like really awesome, really successful game. And the thing that stands out about it is it's uh, the most fun cooperative game I've ever played. 
Um, so actually, like either you all win or you all lose, kind of like pandemic stuff like that. Basically, you're playing superheroes trying to defeat a supervillain. Tons of replay value and just like a really cool theme and great art and stuff like that. So definitely check it out. Very cool. Hello, what are your picks? Um, okay, I have three picks. Um, actually, four because I think Richard didn't mention this. We have an Elm Conf in um, Chicago in April. I think it's called Elm in the Spring. Um, I thought Richard was going to t- was going to talk about it because he didn't. I'm just quickly name dropping it. He's the keynote speaker. <laughs> it's like, come on, I, man, you got to sell yourself. I, I totally should have, but now that you did, uh, I didn't have to. <laughs> okay, so um, I got I got three um picks. That doesn't count. So um, the first one is just, I got to show myself here. I recently published a book called Practical TLA Plus. It's with A-Press and it shows you how to design systems in a way that you can actually test the design itself to see if it's correct or not. So like you can write like an entire MapReduce system in like a hundred lines of like spec and then see, oh wait, hey, if this exact chain of events happens, I'm going to get the wrong answer. So yeah, it's like 20 bucks. It's on A-Press, Practical TLA Plus, Practical TLA Plus. Second rec is that I've been, for this year, I've been trying to learn how to knit just as like a new hobby. And the if you're in Chicago, the place I want to recommend um, is called Nina Chicago. They've been helping me learn and they've been super friendly and really engaging. So if anybody in Chicago is listening to this and wants to pick up a new hobby, it's Nina Chicago, N-I-N-A Chicago. And then finally, since everybody's recommending board games, um, I got to recommend one too, and I've got to do another shill. Um, a friend of mine recently came out with a board game called Tomb Trader. Tomb Trader as in like trading stuff between each other. And you basically play as a bunch of fake archaeologists who are robbing a tomb, and you have to negotiate who gets to split what stuff before the tomb collapses. It's a lot of fun. It's really fast-paced. It's a negotiation game, and you can like get through several rounds of the game in like six minutes. So really fun to like pull out, play with everybody, pull back in. So yeah, those are my three recs. Awesome. Well, thank you both for coming and talking through this with us. It's been really interesting to just explore what everything means and what the options are. So yeah, thanks a lot. And I I think everybody enjoyed just riffing on this stuff. Mm -hmm. Thanks. I had fun. Thanks for having us. All right, folks, we'll wrap this one up and we will be back next week. Peace. Peace. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.